Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. So Isaiah chapter 22, verses 1 to 25. An oracle concerning the valley of vision. What troubles you now that you have all gone up on the roofs, O town full of commotion, O city of tumult and revelry? Your slain were not killed by the sword, nor did they die in battle. All your leaders have fled together. They have been captured without using the bow. All you who were caught were taken prisoner together, having fled while the enemy was still far away. Therefore I said, Turn away from me. Let me weep bitterly. Do not try to console me over the destruction of my people. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, has a day of tumult and trampling and terror in the valley of vision, a day of battering down walls and of crying out to the mountains. Elam takes up the quiver with her charioteers and horses. Kia uncovers the shield. Your choicest valleys are full of chariots and horsemen are posted at the city gates. The defences of Judah are stripped away. And you looked in that day to the weapons in the palace of the forest. You saw that the city of David had many breaches in its defences. You stored up water in the lower pool. You counted the buildings in Jerusalem and tore down houses to strengthen the wall. You built a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but... You did not look to the one who made it, or have regard for the one who planned it long ago. The Lord, the Lord Almighty called you on that day to weep and to wail, to tear out your hair and put on sackcloth. But see, there is joy and revelry, slaughtering of cattle and killing of sheep, Eating of meat and drinking of wine, let us eat and drink, you say, for tomorrow we die. The Lord Almighty has revealed this in my hearing. Till your dying day, this sin will not be atoned for, says the Lord, the Lord Almighty. This is what the Lord, the Lord Almighty says. Go, say to this steward, to Shebna, who is in charge of the palace. What are you doing here? And who gave you permission to cut out a grave for yourself here, hewing your grave on the height and chiseling your resting place in the rock? Beware. The Lord is about to take firm hold of you and hurl you away, O you mighty man. He will roll you up tightly like a ball and throw you into a large country. There you will die, and there your splendid chariots will remain. You disgrace to your master's house. I will depose you from your office, and you will be ousted from your position. In that day I will summon my servant, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe, and fasten your sash around him, and hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. 
What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I will drive him like a peg into a firm place. He will be, like, he will be a seat of honour for the house of his father. All the glory of his family will hang on him, its offspring and offshoots, all its lesser vessels, from the bowls to all the jars. In that day, declares the Lord Almighty, the peg driven into the firm place will give way. It will be sheared off and will fall, and the load hanging on it will be cut down. The Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, we've been uh, singing that you are very different from us. You are the source, uh, the life of all. We flourish and then fade to nothing. So we ask you to help us to see how very different we are from you. And in doing that, helping us to see how utterly dependent we are upon you. And so then to leave here living a life of dependence for the rest of our days. In Jesus' name, amen. Please do sit down. Well, I've met uh, one or two uh, guests here. You're very, very welcome. And um, uh, just to put uh, this uh, sermon in context for you, we've been looking through Isaiah, uh, well, uh, this section of Isaiah from chapter 13 through to chapter 27 over these last weeks. And uh, so you might find it helpful, I'm sure you will find it helpful to turn in your Bible uh, to Isaiah chapter 22, the reading that Richard read for us just a little bit earlier. Page 705 is the page number in the Bible. You might also find it useful if you dig out uh, this handout uh, so that you can see uh, one or two quotes and various uh, bits and pieces. You'll see where we're heading in the next uh, few moments as well. In uh, 21st century Britain, it seems to me that we admire and strive for independence. Uh, We raise our children to be independent. Uh, I often catch myself thinking that if our children, my children, can get through life on their own, uh, leave home, get a job, cope in the world, I'll feel as if I've done a good job as a parent. And raising our children to be independent is supported at school, where, where good schools give a rounded education, including life skills, They too help, indeed, encourage our children to grow into responsible adults who can fend for themselves. And being independent is a big issue when it comes to the welfare state. Uh, In any discussion on state benefits, the the government walks that tightrope between rightly caring for the vulnerable and needy in society without allowing people to sponge off the state. We expect people to provide for themselves, if they can, to be independent. So one way and another, we we see self-sufficiency as laudable and take pride in being independent. But look, as I've been studying Isaiah chapter 2 this week, I'm left wondering if this fierce independence and the desire to be self-sufficient is actually doing us a great disservice. It is so ingrained in us from such an early age that we find it nigh and impossible to trust ourselves fully to the Lord to be entirely dependent upon him. And that's what we discover about the people of God in Isaiah chapter 22. You'll see from verse one, this is an oracle concerning the valley of vision. It's about Jerusalem, but Isaiah chooses this title, the valley of vision, uh, as uh, a way of pointing out the irony of Jerusalem and and her inhabitants. Uh, Jerusalem is a city on a hill. 
a city that was perfectly situated to be able to survey the landscape uh, for miles around, to be able to see what was coming and what was out there. And their physical location should have mirrored their spiritual situation. They were the people of God. They should have had a vision for the future. Through his prophets, the Lord had given Judah a great view of where history was heading. He had lifted them up on a spiritual hill, as it were, to be able to view the landscape. Through the prophets, and not least of all through the prophet Isaiah, they had been given a very clear promise of a glorious future with their God in the new heavenly Jerusalem if they trusted the Lord alone. But in reality... They were, verse 1, in a valley. And in a valley, there is no real vision. So this title, The Valley of Vision, was full of sarcastic irony. Judah were a people who had no vision for the future, a people who lived only for the present, a people who didn't trust the Lord with their future. That's what we discover as we read on. Indeed, as we read on, I reckon the NIV's translation of this uh, first verse is a little confusing. For me, the ESV is better, and I've uh, written this on the handout for you. The ESV reads, what do you mean that you've gone up, all of you, to the housetops? Now, the preacher and writer, Alec Matias' own translation is even better. He translates verse 1, what has got into you then that you have gone up, every one of you, to the housetops? Something strange is going on. In Judah, people are on the top, on the roofs of their houses, and they're they're partying. They're they're having a ball. Verse two: O town of commotion, O city of tumult and revelry, or as Matthias translates it, full of hubbub, noisy city, exultant town. Walk through the gates of Jerusalem, and you'd barely hear yourself think. The place was full of noise. This was a city throwing street parties on the rooftops, hanging out of the windows, bunting flags, food and drink. And they had very good reason to be celebrating halfway through verse 2. Your slain were not killed by the sword, nor did they die in battle. Jerusalem had survived an attack. The people hadn't fallen in battle. They weren't cut down by the sword. No wonder they were rejoicing. But remember, this was a city without vision. And they couldn't see the whole picture. The reality of the situation was something not to be celebrated. And Isaiah knew it. Indeed, had you walked through the narrow streets of Jerusalem that day where the sound of thousands laughing, talking, shouting, singing would have melted into one continuous roar, in all that hullabaloo, if you'd kept your eyes open, you may have seen one man, just one man, slumped in a corner, weeping. Weeping, not tears of joy, but weeping bitterly. And that man was Isaiah, the prophet. He was a man of vision in contrast to the city that had no vision. And what this man of vision saw left him devastated. For while the people of Jerusalem were not killed by the sword and did not die in battle, they were still, verse 2, slain and dead. While the people celebrated that they'd not been killed in battle, Isaiah saw that they were dead. Confused? I think the point is this. They were partying. But Isaiah saw that they were spiritually dead. So even though it didn't look like it, verse 3, leaders had been captured without an arrow being fired. They were prisoners while end of verse 3, the enemy was still far away. The spiritual reality, the vision that Isaiah saw was quite different to the physical manifestation of their celebrating and partying. 
In all this, Isaiah, the prophet of God, saw something the people couldn't see. He saw, end of verse 4, the destruction of the people of Judah. And had you seen him on that day crumpled up on a street corner in Jerusalem, and had you put your hand on his shoulder and asked him why he was weeping, he'd have asked you to leave him alone. He was simply inconsolable. Verse 4, therefore I said, turn away from me. Let me weep bitterly. Try, do not try to console me over the destruction of my people. Isaiah had a very clear vision of the future of Judah. And what he saw was a day of judgment, verse 5. The day, the Lord, the Lord Almighty has a day of tumult and trampling and terror in the valley of vision. A day of battering down walls and of crying out to the mountains. Elam takes up the quiver with her charioteers and horses. Kir uncovers the shield. Your choicest valleys are full of chariots and horsemen are posted at the city gates. The defences of Judah are stripped away. To feel the force of this vision, substitute chariots and horsemen with tanks, warships, fighter jets and bombers all converging upon Jerusalem. This is a vision of Jerusalem under siege. And facing such a fierce and awesome enemy, it looks doomed. And on that day, how did Isaiah see Judah responding? Verse 8, you looked into that day, and you looked in that day to the weapons in the palace of the forest. You saw that the city of David had many breaches in its defences. You stored up water in the lower pool. It appears to be the perfect response for a city under siege. There was first an offensive response. They armed the soldiers, verse 8, by getting weapons from the palace. Then there was the defensive response, verse 9, seeing that there were many breaches in the city walls. They, verse 10, counted the buildings in Jerusalem and tore down houses to strengthen the wall. It's a brilliant war effort, taking down the buildings inside the city to supply bricks to repair and strengthen the city walls that had been breached. They considered offence and defence, and then they didn't forget the importance of supplies. Verse 11, they built a reservoir to ensure a clean and constant water supply. This uh, reservoir is actually referring to known as what is called uh, Hezekiah's Tunnel. You can go to Jerusalem and, and still see it today. It was one of the engineering marvels of the day. A tunnel bringing water into the city from the Gion Spring, which in a direct line was 330 metres away, although the tunnel was much longer as it had to twist and turn to avoid difficulties and follow fissures. Workmen started at opposite ends of the tunnel and amazingly it met in the middle. This remarkable feat of engineering dealt with Jerusalem's most vulnerable issue under siege, its water supply. And so in verses 8 to 11, as Jerusalem came under siege... The response from the people of Judah seems to be brilliant. They thought of everything. But what impresses men does not impress the Lord. In doing all this planning and and building, and especially in constructing the tunnel and reservoir, Isaiah declares, verse 11, you built a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to the one who made it or have regard for the one who planned it long ago. Under siege, Judah, the people of God, did everything except turn to the Lord. They completely forgot to do the very thing they should have done first of all. As the city came under siege, they should have looked to the Lord for deliverance, trusted him 
That's what a people of vision would have done. But no, they looked to their weapons, to their walls and to their water supply. They trusted themselves and their ability and ingenuity to defend themselves. Just look at the language of these verses. It's the language of independence. Verse 8, you looked. Verse 9, you saw and you stored. Verse 10, you counted, you tore down. And verse 11, you built. They did it all. At no point did they look to the Lord. But that was exactly why this day came upon them. It was meant to bring them back to the Lord. Look back to the beginning of verse 5. The Lord, the Lord Almighty has a day of tumult and trampling and terror in the valley of vision. See, the Lord Almighty had brought this day upon them. This day of siege came from God's hand. And it came with a purpose, verse 12. The Lord, the Lord Almighty called you on that day to weep and to wail, to tear out your hair and to put on sackcloth. But see, there is joy and revelry, slaughtering of cattle and killing of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink, you say, for tomorrow we die. You see, verse 12, it should have been a day of repentance and of turning to the Lord. Uh, They should have seen that they couldn't do it on their own. They should have trusted him, but that never happened. Now, in this time of real crisis, the people of Judah remained fiercely independent. They didn't look to the Lord at any point. And so when they won the battle, they rejoiced as pagans rejoice. End of verse 13, they said, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And that says it all. That statement at the end of verse 13. That says it all. It says they had no vision, no thought about the new heavenly Jerusalem that Isaiah promised. They were effectively living like pagans. And I come to that conclusion because of the way that very phrase there in verse 13 is picked up in the New Testament. Again, I put it at the bottom of the first page of the handout. The Apostle Paul quotes this phrase in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As he argues for the importance of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, Paul writes, if there is no resurrection, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If there's no life beyond the grave, if there's no heaven, no hell below us, above us only sky, no eternal life with our God in the new creation, if none of that exists, then eat, drink and be merry. Have a blast while it lasts. Get as much as you can now. Live for the here and now. That's how Paul argues as he picks up this verse in the New Testament. And that is exactly how the people of Judah were living. They were in a valley of vision. They couldn't see beyond this life. Or rather, they wouldn't see beyond this life. For the Lord had given them a very clear vision of the future. He sent his prophet Isaiah to speak to them. And Isaiah spoke of a glorious future in the presence of their God in the heavenly Jerusalem. That is where Isaiah ends, the book ends. A future of peace and justice and righteousness that would be theirs as they trusted in the Messiah. He promised them a place of abundance, a place full of the choicest cuts of food and the best wine. But that glorious future was not in their sights at all. They were living for the here and now. Basically, here were God's people living without God. And for that reason, Isaiah writes, verse 14, the Lord Almighty has revealed this in my hearing. Till your dying day, this sin will not be atoned for. You see, there simply is no atonement, no forgiveness for us when we've walked away from God. 
We can only be forgiven when we return to him, when we trust him, and, refuse, and Judah simply refused to do that. So no forgiveness. And now we see why Isaiah was weeping so bitterly and why he was inconsolable. Now we see why Isaiah was so upset that Judah was partying when in the words of verse two, they were dead, spiritually dead. No, they weren't killed by the sword and they didn't die in battle, but they were dead to God. So can you see how our fierce independence does us no favours? The Christian life is not a life of independence, but a life of total dependence upon our God. It's how the Christian life begins in dependence, throwing ourselves upon Jesus for his forgiveness, knowing we can't make ourselves right with God. We can't get to the new heavenly Jerusalem on our own. We need him. We've already sung it in, well, we call it a children's song. It's a wonderful song. What do we sing? I need someone to help me. I cannot change my evil heart. I need someone to save me. The Christian life is a life of dependence. And the Christian life is a life of vision, a life that looks beyond this life to the future, the future heavenly Jerusalem that God has promised for us and has won for us through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. The Christian life is not simply getting everything we can for ourselves now, but trusting ourselves to the Lord to bring us to a future that is beyond compare, so much better than anything we can have here. But what is so shocking about this oracle is that this is talking about Judah, the people of God of Isaiah's day. And for that reason, we must ask ourselves as we read this, as a church family, are we living a life of independence, independent of God? As we uh, studied this as a team this week, uh, we uh, came to the conclusion that we're, we're not completely like the people of Judah in Isaiah's day. They were people who were not relying upon the Lord at all. They were people who had absolutely no vision at all for the future heavenly Jerusalem. I don't think that's us. But while we're not totally self-sufficient, we're not as dependent upon the Lord as we should be. The people of Judah thought that all their planning and strategy alone would get them out of the fix that they found themselves in. And we can easily tend towards that way. Here at Forward, we work hard, we plan hard, we strategize and organize, we think and consider carefully how we should go forward. But how much do we pray? In our planning, how much do we think it is our planning, our organizing, our strategy that will get us through? And how much do we believe that it is God's work? Now look, we need to be careful here. As we look at Judah's planning and strategizing and building their walls and especially the reservoir, we're not saying that it's a sin to, well, improve amenities or to make the most of human ingenuity or to strategize in any way. That's not the point at all. But to quote Alec Matier, and I've put the quote on the handout, it is a sin to depart from a position of simple, uncomplicated, trustful faith and to replace it with man-made devices and securities. So do you see how our learning to be fiercely independent and self-sufficient just might be doing us a great disservice? We do find it hard to trust the Lord, and not least of all here in Fullwood. For the vast majority of us here are self-sufficient and independent. As I look out 
upon this congregation, most of you have done very well for yourselves. You have learned to think and work hard and it has paid dividends. In your professions, you strategize and use your minds to work out solutions to problems. And you have succeeded as you've done that. And there's nothing wrong with that until it becomes the only thing we do or the first thing we do. And when it means that we don't trust the Lord, but rather trust our ability to solve the problem. So what about us? How do we cope? How will we cope with the challenges ahead of us? What will we look to? What will we do when the world comes bearing down upon us? At the APCM at the end of April, I suggested that there were three areas of challenge for us this year as a church family, and I put them on the back of the handout. The three areas being prayer, giving, and evangelism. And so as we look at the lessons of this chapter in uh, chapter 22 of Isaiah, we need to apply it to those three areas. First, prayer. Now look, I'm very aware that as I speak of prayer, it can induce feelings of guilt. I don't know any real Christian who doesn't think that they ought to pray more and that their prayer life can't improve. Uh, Very aware of that and of my own inadequacy in prayer. My intention here is not to make us feel guilty. There's no point in doing that. That gets us nowhere. But prayer is a great barometer of our dependence upon the Lord. A lack of prayerfulness suggests an independent spirit. I don't need to pray. I can do it on my own. So this chapter challenges us to consider our prayer life as a church family. And I don't think that as a church we pray in a way that suggests that we are totally dependent upon the Lord. As a staff team, we we had a day away a few weeks back and uh, were thinking about this very thing, challenging ourselves as as a staff team about our prayer life. We We thought about ourselves and about us as a church family and you know, it seems to me and to us that in times, in the times that we do pray as a church, there isn't this sense of turning to the Lord because he alone is the one who can deliver us. We don't pray as if our life depended upon it. I look at the church family prayer meeting and I know that's not the only meeting uh, that we pray as a church, but I am concerned at the amount of people who could be in our monthly prayer meeting but who don't ever come suggests to me that as a church family we don't think we need to pray but as the world comes bearing down upon us in opposition against us in so many ways we surely must see that we can't stand on our own we can't be independent of the Lord and we won't grow without the Lord working it's not us doing it he does it if we saw that we would pray well from prayer to the second of our challenges this year it's giving as we heard at the APCM we are heading towards a considerable financial deficit this year it's not a situation that we can sustain into the following year and so again Isaiah chapter 22 challenges us in this when it comes to money what does a life of trusting the Lord look like as we've considered over these past weeks the world's way of looking for security is to turn to money considering money to be the provider, the saviour and the comforter that we need. And so we save up money for a rainy day to make us feel secure and safe. But that's not an attitude of trust in the Lord. And it's not a position of vision. 
When we have a vision for the heavenly Jerusalem and trust in the Lord, we are liberated to give money away for the work of the gospel, to help others to come to know the Lord, that they too may be in this new heavenly Jerusalem. And when we believe that the Lord is our provider and saviour and comforter, we don't need to keep saving up. We can trust him to provide. These tough economic times, tough times for us as a church family and many individually, might just be the wake-up call we need in this. Just as we saw that the Lord brought Judah to a time of siege to bring them to repentance and to trust in him, so these tough times financially could be the way the Lord, in his kindness, is calling us back to a life of trust in him. Prayer giving, thirdly, evangelism. The book of Isaiah, as I've already said, is heading in one direction. It's taking people from all nations to the heavenly new Jerusalem to be with the Lord forever. That should have been Judah's vision. And it should be ours too. And so we need to be about that work of evangelism, of helping people from every nation to come to know the Lord themselves. And so from September, we've planned a year of evangelistic endeavour under the banner, the national banner, A Passion for Life 2014. But listen, while we will plan, and we hopefully plan well, and train each other in evangelism and apologetics, and lay on events that are, we trust, high quality and low cringe, we must remember in all of that, it is God's work to bring people to him. People won't become Christians just because we plan and train and work hard. We must pray that God would work. In all these things, prayer, giving, evangelism, our whole life, failing to turn to the Lord, trusting him in these things, we'll be demonstrating that we are very much like Judah. If not as far as Judah, at least on the road that they're on. Well, as we draw to a close, let me briefly, and it will be very brief, point you to the second half of this chapter. You see, having seen how Judah as a nation failed to trust the Lord, in the second half of the chapter, we meet two characters, two individuals. Their names are Shebna and Eliakim. Shebna is a classic example of someone who had no vision for the future and who relied upon himself. Uh, Shebna was, verse 15, in charge of the palace. He had a position of responsibility among the people of God, a position that should have seen him trust the Lord and help others to put their trust in the Lord too. But in verse 16, we read that Shebna was giving himself to chiseling out a gravestone for himself. He wanted to leave a permanent memorial to himself for generations to come. You see, in Shebna, we see that self-sufficiency leads to self-exaltation. I can do it. I want everyone to realise how great I was that I did it. Shebna spent his life making a name for himself. He wanted to be remembered. He wanted to leave a legacy. He had no vision for the heavenly Jerusalem that Isaiah points to. He was bothered about his gravestone. And so Shebna is laid before us to challenge us. If we are not people who look to the heavenly Jerusalem and trust the Lord and not ourselves, then we can do no better than create ourselves a great headstone on our grave. And then Isaiah says to Shebna, because he was like this, verse 17, beware the Lord is about to take firm hold of you and hurl you away, O mighty man. No, he wasn't a mighty man at all. Again, it's full of irony. 
The Lord will roll you up tightly like a ball, verse 18, and throw you into a large country. There you will die, and there your splendid chariots will remain. You disgrace to your father's master's house. In contrast, we're introduced to Eliakim. The Lord describes him in verse 20 as my servant. And because he is a faithful servant of the Lord, he is given a wonderful position, a royal position. In fact, he is given Shebna's position. Shebna is thrown away and Eliakim is put in his place. That's what we read in verse 21. I will clothe him, Eliakim, with your robe, Shebna, your robe, and fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I will drive him like a peg into a firm place. He will be a seat of honour for the house of his father. All the glory of his family will hang on him, its offspring and offshoots, and all its lesser vessels from the bowls to all the jars. The point is this, because Eliakim is a servant of the Lord, he gets a position of honour and glory, the very thing that Shebna was seeking for himself. And crucially there in verse 22, Eliakim is given the key to the house of David, the royal household, the household from whom the promised Messiah would come. And we are pointed to the Messiah here, for although Eliakim is a great example to us, he's not the Messiah. He's not the one we should put our trust in, as verse 25 shows. He can't bear the weight of a nation trusting him. No, look to the Messiah. But still, with these two people before us, Shebna and Eliakim, we're being asked, as you look in the mirror, which one do you see? One, independently living for himself, with no vision for the future, doing nothing more than digging a grave for himself. Or when you look in the mirror, do you see one dependently, uh, living dependently upon the Lord? A person of vision, living for the house of David, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's a life with a future. And it comes from a life of dependency upon our God. And so our striving to raise our children to be independent and our longing to be self-sufficient might be something we want to reevaluate as Christians. For if we are to enjoy all that the Lord has prepared for us, we must be entirely dependent upon him. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we come to this little chapter tucked away in a part of the Bible that we probably don't know very well, we thank you that we see that every part of your word is as relevant today as it ever was. We thank you for graciously speaking to us, highlighting to us our tendency to move away from you, to be independent of you. And we ask you to help us indeed to rescue us from walking the road that Judah walked. That if we're beginning to walk that road, to turn around and to find ourselves learning to be dependent upon you, looking to you to give us so much more, the glorious heavenly Jerusalem that you've promised. We pray you'd help us to be an encouragement to do that as a church family together. And as we do, May it be that we see 
you doing mighty and great things for your praise and glory. Amen.